today we are going to be talking about Calvinism yet again. We're going to be talking, um, we're going to be responding so to Soteriology 101. And um, one of the most important things that I, I didn't know this until recently that the actual word soteriology means the doctrine of salvation. And so it's 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 really cool a uh, YouTube channel because his focus is exactly like where I would focus um, my time and my um, focus because it's really important. And you know we get this response a lot where people say like, "Why do you care? Who cares? Like why is that that important?" And it's because um, I'm a watch guy. I love watches. They're one of my favorite things. But if you have the smallest, tiniest little screw or gear or pin or spring and it's not in the right location and it's not right and if it's not even there even if it's not even there watch isn't going to work you know and and that's why i and soteriology uh, 101 really get along in this regard is that we have this really interesting responses back and forth that i think are really important so, to start off today, we're going to talk about a couple of things. First of all, the person who sets um, the question is who sets the narrative, okay? And when I say that, I mean um, whoever is asking the question has the ability to create the platform that everyone else is working with. I'll give you an extreme, extreme example. Let's say um, I ask you the question. What color pants were you wearing when you murdered your wife? Now, the question may seem on the top of the surface, oh, he just wants to know about the color of my pants. But in that answer, if I were to give a color like khaki or maroon or jeans, then I would also be subscribing to the fact that I said I killed my wife, right? And so that kind of exchange is really important in, um, in this circumstance. And so I want to talk about first and foremost, the definition of total depravity. And the best way to do this is to um, Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay. I want to talk about fallenness. Okay. And I want to talk about uh, God's grace on us and what total depravity looks like. Okay. So let me get here. Real quick. Okay. Here is a great definition of... This is the Calvinist... Essentially, this is the Calvinist rule book. I mean, this is exactly like our confession of faith. Right? It's not a Bible, but it references the Bible, and it helps clarify terms. That's all it is. People get really upset about the Westminster Confession of Faith or whatever... But I haven't experienced that in, in my own life yet, but I can imagine that someone might think that, it, that we think it's the Bible, but it's, it's not. So, um, we're looking at chapter 9 of Free Will, and this is part 3 of this. So this is section 3, part, part 9, section 3. Man, by his fallen into state of sin, has wholly lost the ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, so as a natural man being altogether adverse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Honestly, the best describer that I could use of this example is his own words, is Soteriology's own words. We don't initiate anything. God initiates everything. So, soteriology is a provisionist. That's what he is. Right? That's his that's his whole thing. He is a provisionist. So, what is provisionism? I'm just I'm starting this off with definitions because this is really important. Now, provisionism is the idea that the gospel is the word of God, which is sufficient in and of itself. However, there is a caveat, there is a modifier to this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, to enable a, ref a response, to enable a response 
to all who hear God's appeal to be reconciled to him. Let's read this very slowly, because I think that him and Calvinism go hand in hand. They, they agree. Provisionism is the idea that the gospel is the word of God, which is sufficient in and of itself through the power of the Holy Spirit to enable a response in all who hear God's appeal to be reconciled to him. So, the Holy Spirit, as Calvinists would say, we are quickened by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables a response in all the people who hear God's appeal to be reconciled to him, not someone else's appeal, right? And what I'm trying to get at is that there are two definitions that he uses as total depravity. And there's a right one and there's a wrong one. A, which I'm going to use, he says people cannot respond to the gospel. That is the correct definition of total depravity. He even says that in his definition, well, not he, but the definition of provisionism, that the word of God is sufficient in and of itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not without the Holy Spirit, it would not be sufficient in and of itself. The modifier, or yeah, the modifier here is the Holy Spirit. So the wrong definition of total depravity is cannot respond to God or the Holy Spirit. He is under the influence that, or he is under the idea that Calvinism believes that we are unable to respond to God at all. When God is the one that is calling us and trying and quickening us in initiating, he's saying that Calvinists are saying that, and that's not what Calvinists are saying. Calvinists say, and one honestly could read these both side by side, and they would be exactly the same, is here it is. Um, where is my, what happened to my Westminster Confession of Faith? What happened to it? Man is not able by his own strength to convert himself. That, that's all I'm saying. And so here, here's what I've done, okay? Is I have walked, I have created um, a, a little visual aid here. He created, he had his cups. So I have uh, a little visual aid here. Okay, and this is a overview of the life of a born human who is elected. Now, election is part of the Bible. That's Romans 9. I'm not going to get into that. I'll, I'll go into that a different one when he talks about predestination not being a thing. Because he probably he probably believes that. So, at the very beginning here, we have election. right? That happened at the beginning of time. And then we're conceived. right? That's what happened. We, were, we got conceived. <laughs> now, at this point, we are condemned. right? We are condemned... At the beginning of our life. At the very beginning of our life. And if you don't believe that, okay, the Bible gives us several points of perspective on this. And I'm going to read them here. Here we go. All right, what we got? We've got here. I'm trying to find uh, my... Uh-oh. My, my, uh, my laptop is being overworked. Psalms 51. Okay? Psalms 51, 5, 4... Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother did conceive me. This is not about sin that his mother did. This is about, I was born a sinner. Now, if that's not good enough for you, Psalms 58, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like venom of a serpent. In the deaf adder, the deaf ad adder that stops its ear. I don't know what that is, but I do know the wicked are estranged from the womb, and they go astray from birth speaking lies. Okay, and then we have Job 14.4, which is not about birth, but it is kind of about birth. It's about the dynamic of the father and son. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? There is not one. Okay, and then Genesis 8. Okay, 
right here. Um, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we have conceived, we have birth, we have youth. There's no place for um, the age of accountability. There's none of that. There's no place for that. It doesn't exist. They are condemned at birth at this example. So we go back to our little timeline. They are conceived. They are pre-quickened. It has not happened yet. But they are condemned at birth. Okay? Now, they are quickened by the Holy Spirit because they are elected. Right here. They are chosen. That's Romans 9. I can read that for you, but I'm not going to because I'm going to talk about it later. They are quickened. And then they have a confession of their sin and a salvation. Right? Because of the quickening. It didn't just happen. It's not some magical transfer of neurons in two of the same brain cells happen to collide at the exact right time. It's none of that. It is only the Holy Spirit that quickens us. And that is the word quickened. I mean, you may have heard of this. It's called quicken loans. You ever heard of that? <laughs> it's the same idea that a loan is born, right? Like that's where that comes from, quicken loans. That 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 uh that an idea is so easy. It just it's just alive. It's a loan that was dead. You weren't allowed to get it, but it's so easy with quicken loans that it becomes alive. That's the concept. And then you're baptized, but baptism is separate from salvation, right? Baptism is a response to salvation. So I have separated those things here, and then you are saved, and sanctification, and then you die, and you live eternally. Right, so, so this is a very important thing to continue to reference because this guy thinks that this doesn't exist. Right here, this Holy Spirit doesn't exist. Or he doesn't, he's not the one that converts us. Alright, and so I'm going to play him for his word. I'm going to play him, like actually play the video of, of what he says um, because... He says he likes to give Calvinists like the fair shake and all this, but that is that's not always true. So here we go. Total depravity. Here we go. Not want to do it. It's not like they're trying to do it and can't. It's they don't want to do it. They hate and reject the things of God from birth. And they can't control that. It's just an automatic hatred that they're born with. They just detest the things of God because of the way they were born. Now, I think that removes blameworthiness. And I think, in other words, I think somebody's more blameworthy when they have control over their character. And Calvinists are teaching, ultimately, you have no control over your character. You're born a God-hater, and you can't control that. I think that removes blameworthiness. I think you're more blameworthy when you do have some element of control. So if you want to get into this battle, this, this pious battle of who can make men sound worse, because sometimes that's what theologians seem to want to do, is if I can get into a competition with you to see which of, uh, of our theological views actually makes men sound worse, I would say provisionists win, uh, even if I'm going to play that game with you. It doesn't really matter <laughs> what, what systems say. It matters what the scripture says. Obviously. Okay. So, he who asks the question sets the narrative. All right? He thinks that we have this, um, some sort of thing. He says, I think that it is someone is more blameworthy when they have control over their actions. And Calvinists ultimately teach that you have no control over your character. You are born a God-hater and you can't control that. The problem is the modifier. Okay, and I'm going to read, I'm going to go to scripture here because he doesn't do that. Okay, here we go. Um, nope, that's the wrong one. Yes, that's the wrong one too. Where am I? Where am I? Where are my verses here? I'm trying to find my verses. Oh yeah, I forgot I put them with the video here. Hold on a second. Okay. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay. Blame. That's that's a blame. Surely there's, you know. Okay. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do, uh, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do, I uh, do not want to do, but I keep doing this. Okay? Therefore, just as, uh, hold on, not that one. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the problem that I have with this quote is the idea of more blameworthiness. There is no such thing as more blameworthiness. It's just, uh, are, are all of mankind equally blameworthy? Yes. There is no such thing. It's blameworthiness is not on a spectrum. And no Calvinist is trying to make humanity look bad. Okay? We do that all by ourselves. <laughs> like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're really good at doing that. We're really, really good at that. Because that's our natural, sinful nature. There is nothing good in us. Bottom line. So, what should we say? Is that an injustice on God's half? Why does God blame us? Right? Is that injustice on God's part? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So not only... Okay. Does it just say that... Um, not only does it say that God is the one who is in control of whom he has mercy, but God is also in control of whom he condemns. God is the one that has elected this. He chose this. This is Romans 9, starting at 14. This is 19. You will say to me, then why does God still find fault in me? For who can resist God's will? Right. So even the person asking the question who is offended by this premise, essentially, is offended by the fact that who can re no one can resist God's will. Right? But, but this guy is saying that. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will that that is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel that is made for honor and one that is used for dishonor? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Okay? So, the thing is that there is, and it, he says it perfectly, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not the fact that the mercy is the modifier, right? Condemnation was everything. All right, and you look at, for example, like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, right? People look at that and they say like, oh, well, that's the gospel for everyone. Okay, but does everyone go to heaven? No, unfortunately not. Right, but the thing is, does everyone go to heaven? No. What's the modifier? The fact is that some people do not believe. And why do some people believe? Because God has chosen beforehand who will get the mercy. Earth, for God so loved the world, has been biologically changed and modified through Christ for mercy. It's never happened before, except for very few examples that were to lead up to this example of the world that we're living in now. Here we go. He said, that's our authority. But if you want to enter into a game of which of the two systems makes men worse, I will stand toe to toe you with you on that because provisionism, I think, makes men more blameworthy. In other words, which is more blameworthy? A, God, a, a man who, who is born unable to love God, unable to want God, unable to respond positively to him, and who rejects a God he doesn't, who doesn't love him or provide for him? Or a man who is loved by God, who is free to accept or reject his truth, but who chooses to stand in, in the face of God's loving provision, refuses it, and walks away. Which of those two is worse? Right, and so that's the thing, is that he's trying to add this element of blameworthiness to it by saying, like, oh, a man is worse when he rejects God because it's his choice. It's his choice to reject God. 
right? But there is only one plan with God. God is the controller of the entire plan. And God's plan is not beholden to man. You do not get to change God's plan. You don't get to do that. That's not a thing that happens. Okay? The things that... You don't get to change God's plan. It doesn't happen. God is not beholden. He's not asking. He's not asking. Alright? He is telling you, Lazarus, get up. Let's go. Right? That's, that's the thing. Is It's a command. Like God's plan, there is one plan. What happened at the very beginning of time is what's going to happen, especially when it comes to salvation. Especially when you talk about Romans 9 right here. Especially when it comes to salvation. The Bible is clear about this. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Which he has prepared for beforehand. And then Ephesians um, 3 even goes even further than that. So, we have 1 John 1.8. I'm on my way there. I was trying to get there before we finish this quote. But I, I'm... Uh, Alright, here we are. 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay? If a person says that he has no sin, then the truth is not in him. Alright? That's what that verse is saying. So what's the antithesis? The antithesis is that there are people that say that they have no sin in their lives. So if you flip it and say, if a man says that he has sin, then the truth is in him. And who's the truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the light. So, that's the thing that I'm trying to say is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to, ju to just to forgive us of our sins. Right? And so you have to understand that when Christ came, and you see the word, like, for God so loved the world, mercy did not exist on this planet because sin had, Adam had broken it. And Romans says here, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all had sinned. That's Romans 5.12. But then he continues to, he, he continues to um, compare Adam, and, um, but sin has, is not counted, um, oh, because all had sinned, for sin was indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. But then the free, so then he talks about Jesus Christ. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more had the grace of God given the free gift by a grace of another man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespasses brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Right? And so, what we're trying to get at here is that if I'm giving you a gift, you have no part of it. The whole point is that it's a free gift that does nothing. Okay. And so, let's say, I'm going to give you an example here. Let's say that you're going out in your... Um, doing a ministry. Let's say you're going out and spreading the gospel, right? That's just, which is for everybody, which is for the world, right? The gospel is for the world, but not everybody in the world is going to take it. That's what that means, okay? So, you go out and you spread the gospel. Who is the one that is saving somebody? If someone is saved um, as you're preaching to them, who does that saving? It's not you. You didn't do it. Is the Holy Spirit working through you? That is John 6. Okay? The Holy Spirit is working through you to talk to this person. And then you will know them by their fruit. So if you walk away and you've made a connection with this person that has been saved in front of you and, and, uh, and, um, by, and the Holy Spirit has used you to convert them, right? Then, then... You watch and you wait and see if the sanctification kicks in because there is an obvious change. You'll know them by the fruit of their. Uh, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their change. 
You'll know them, but by one time they were an alcoholic and now they're not. You'll know them because they used to do this one thing and now they don't, right? And they're trying. They're trying to change. That trying to change doesn't exist without the Holy Spirit and without God and without Jesus' death. It doesn't exist. So who does the saving? The Holy Spirit does. So replace you with that person and just pretend that you're converting to yourself, you're talking to yourself. And what that would look like in a real-world example is someone who just picks up the Bible um, ad hoc, just finds it, just goes, oh, um, this is an interesting book. I wonder what this is. And then they pick it up, and they read it all the way through, and they go, you know what? Not for me. Who did the rejecting? I did. But who does the saving? The Holy Spirit does. So if I were to pick up this Bible, and I were to go, wow, this is true. This is absolutely true. And then it says, and you can kind of relay this back to Peter, where it says, who do you say I am? Oh, you're the Messiah. Oh, good job. You did not do this because of you. You did this because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. Right? And so he's adding a modifier to provisionism and making provisionists look look bad, essentially. I mean, I'll be honest. All right, here we go. Continuing on now. Demonstrably, it's true. It's even... even a, completely, if you're completely objective, you would have to say, well, obviously the man who rejects a God who loves and provides for him, who has the ability to do otherwise, obviously he's more blameworthy. That's just a given. It, 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 you don't even have to have a debate over that. That's just a, it's just, it's just a given as far as who is, who is more blameworthy. Well, when you say people are born absolutely unable to respond even to God, then you removed their blameworthiness. Okay. So then if you say that you are unable to respond, then you have removed your blameworthiness. So what you're saying is that you're forgetting the history of the planet. You're forgetting the history of sin. Man was condemned from the beginning. Once Adam sinned, that's what condemned the planet, right? It's not the other way around where sin was like, oh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there. No, what cannot, what is unclean cannot produce something that's clean. You know, and, and that's the thing. I'll read it one more time, just, just for the sake, okay? I just want you to clear, I really want you to know this, okay? Because he says, and I quote, let's, let's go back to the quote. Where's the quote? Here's the quote. All right. When you say that people are born unable to respond even to God, you have removed their blameworthiness. People are not saying not to respond to God. This is definition B, where he's wrong. This is where he flip-flops the definition of total depravity. The total depravity is that you are unable to respond to the gospel. The gospel and God are separate entities. I know that that sounds hard to understand. It's, it's a strange thing to say. But this is not God. This is God's word. When you, this is a medium. This is the intermediary transfer of ideas from God to human. That's what this is. It's like saying that the, the very atoms that Jesus were made of, that's, that's, it is God, but it's, it's not, right? It's that the word of God is, is here, but this is, is a presentation that people can reject and do all the time. But God himself, who actually makes the move, the Holy Spirit that makes the move on somebody, no one can reject that. No one can reject. It is irresistible grace where someone says, as soon as God initiates the conversation. Now, when I pick this up, there can be two options. One, the Holy Spirit can use this. The Holy Spirit can use this, or two, I can be reading this as head knowledge. Atheists read the Bible all the time. Pastors read the Bible all the time. Guess what? Pastors go to hell. Guess what? Atheists go to hell. Just because you read the Bible does not mean that they are going to heaven. Just because you have the head knowledge of the Gospels does not mean that you're going to heaven. That's just, that's just the truth. So when you say that you people are born unable to respond to God, people have been born not to respond to God. 
Oh crap, my uh, video went bad. One moment. Are we back? And we're back. All right. Um, I've got, uh, I lost you for a moment, and so now I'm kicking it back in. Um, when you say people are born unable to respond even to God, you have removed their blameworthiness. Man has been blameworthy since the beginning of time. Since all the way at the beginning of time, as soon as man sinned, it brought dirt and sin into this earth. Right? And that's just what the Bible says. I will read you the verse here. Okay. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. Okay. Blameworthiness exists. If you die, you're blameworthy. That's essentially what it's saying. Sin equals death. And so, we continue on here. It's just a misrepresentation of what Calvinists believe. Because you're ultimately saying they're, they're being judged for something they have absolutely no control over because they're absolutely unable to do otherwise. That removes their blameworthiness. That's not my argument, by the way. That's not original to me at all. Read the early church fathers fighting against the Gnostics. Read the Gnostics of the first century. They make this exact same argument over and over and over again. Not just once or twice. Tons of times throughout the, the first centuries. Just, just a fact of the matter. What is true, MacArthur goes on to write, of everybody is that we have no ability to respond to the gospel. Okay. Now, if, if uh, James White were... Now, that's the first time that he's ever actually given the proper definition or read this quote exactly. He's always been adding conjecture to it, but this is the first time he's read it all the way through. Watching, he would go, uh-oh, we do have a, a ability to respond to the gospel. How dare you, John MacArthur, because you didn't say respond negative, positively. If you don't put the word positive in there, James White will jump all over you and say, oh, we do have the ability to respond. He didn't even understand Calvinism. He was never a Calvinist, obviously. MacArthur was never a Calvinist, apparently, because he didn't say respond positively. Okay, You have no ability to respond positively. It's just a mute point. Negatively is what they'll say. And they think you, they got you, right? They're, they're nitpicking you is what they're doing. It is nitpicking. And uh, so that, that just like you can nitpick MacArthur here. We all know what he means. You cannot respond positively in other words, you can't respond in faith to the gospel. Well, and this this is where it get kind of like he said, she said. This is kind of like where it becomes this way. I like to refer back to this actual definition of total depravity, where it says, by his own strength to convert himself, right? There is, uh, has lost the all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So you can't do any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. You can't do any of that. So as man, so as a natural man being altogether adverse from that good, so that being accompanying salvation, is not able by his own strength to convert himself, right? So it doesn't matter about the positively or negatively. It, that's it, it, It's just he said, she said to a certain degree. But that is why I like to go back to definitions. Because of a nature of your world were born. And I would even go to say this, that you... As a provisionist, don't even believe in this because you have the word of God, which is good enough in and of itself with the Holy Spirit. So you can't even respond with just the word of God by itself because you need the modifier of the Holy Spirit in order for you to see and confess and then be saved. But yet you're going to be held accountable for not responding positively to the gospel. Right. Everyone is held accountable to sin. Everyone has sinned. Everyone, every single person, all have fallen short. Therefore, everyone is blameworthy. No matter how they do it, you were born a sinner, right? Because biologically, the sin has changed the earth. Sin, death came into the earth because of sin, right? Adam wasn't born, Adam wasn't born a sinner, right? Shocker. Adam wasn't born a sinner. He was born, had not sinned yet, but then he did. And when he did, he was the one. That's, that's the thing, is that you want to take the pre-Adam doctrine of he had a choice. In that certain circumstance, he did have a choice. But if you or I or anyone were in that boat, we all would have made the same choice. That's the bottom line. Just keep that in mind. 
we are completely unable to raise ourselves out of the state of death. Now, earlier he used the Lazarus story as his example, just like we've always heard from Piper and others who use Lazarus as their sociological example for this, even though the story of Lazarus makes no link to sociology whatsoever. Okay, so again, let's talk about definitions. The doctrine of salvation. So soteriology, soteriology is, the is the doctrine of salvation. So does Lazarus have any connection to uh, the doctrine of salvation? Well, he says that there isn't. As his example, just like we've always heard from Piper and others who use Lazarus as their sociological example for this, even though the story of Lazarus makes no link to sociology whatsoever. Makes no link to to whatever that word is, whatsoever. Soteriology, right? The Lazarus is just completely insulated from the concept of salvation, okay? And how I like to use this is Lazarus was... Lazarus, and the reason why Calvinists use Lazarus to begin with is because it's just a good example of what quickening looks like. Quickening is, okay, the definition of quickening is that when you're, when you're pregnant, okay, you feel the baby kick for the first time. It's like a first sign of life, okay? And you can kind of feel this quickening, right? You can feel the baby, like, essentially become its own, right? It's an, it's this, it's this, birthing concept where it was not really in existence, but then it was. And this was written way before there were the modern day test kits and things like that. You can tell that you're pregnant to a certain degree, but then boom, that baby's alive. You know what I mean? Now it's a child. Now it's real. You know what I mean? And, and it's not real. It was real all the way from the conception, but the mother now has the understanding that the baby is real. And so the, the, the reality of life kicks in at that point. Lazarus is a really good example of the quickening because of the commandment aspect of, of what Jesus does there. He doesn't say anything. Um, he doesn't invite Lazarus. He commands him, Lazarus, come out, right? Is, and that's, that's what it is. Now, do you really think that as a Christian that Lazarus has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus resurrected? Do you really mean to tell me that Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with resurrection at all. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, Lazarus has nothing to do with it. That it's just a good miracle and that's all it is. Because I would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you there, bud. And I'm going to tell you why. Because even, let's see, Romans 8.11 is what I wrote down here. Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. A lot of people don't know this. Okay, and this would be really interesting because there's, there's this uh, raised to life uh, motif all in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's I mean, from Lazarus as an example. Um, and, and even uh, Trip Lee understands this with his song uh, Lazarus. Okay, he, <laughs> you know he was raised to life. Even Trip Lee rappers understand this. Okay, and and he's a pastor and he's a he's a well versed pastor. But I mean he's not exactly going after and making huge theological claims here. When someone sees that Lazarus was raised to life, and someone can go, "Wow, Christ changed my life and turned me from my sinful death." I was dead in my sin, and now I have life through Christ, eternal life through Christ. Like, it's really simple to add that connection there. And you know what's interesting is that Jesus, um, hold on one second. Jesus, uh, people were resurrected when Jesus died. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Matthew 27, 52. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight this, and I'm going to go to, uh-oh, uh what happened? Go away. Okay. Um, Siri just came up. I guess I hit some Siri button. I had a lot of interruptions on this uh, podcast today. <laughs> All right. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised to life. And uh, let me read this all in full context. This was, what did I say, twenty-seven fifty-two. Let's get down to 52 here. 
51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints had fallen asleep or raised to life. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with them kept watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. Right? But if you listen carefully to what Soteriology 101 says, he says that God, Jesus used this miracle of raising Lazarus to just show that he's the Son of God. You know what's interesting? Is that when Jesus was raised to life, the centurion and a lot of other people were like, wow, this is the Son of God. But it doesn't have any connection whatsoever, and it shouldn't be used. In fact, he even says, I'm glad that I tarried so that through this miracle, you may be convinced that I am who I say I am which doesn't make much sense in my estimation if, um, if ultimately uh, some act of regeneration or effectual grace is going to cause them to believe. Miracle is not going to make a difference in that. So anyway, he goes on to write. He says, we are completely unable to give our blind hearts sight. We are completely unable to free ourselves from slavery to sin. Now, do we agree that you can't free yourself from slavery to sin? Of course. You cannot free yourself from slavery to sin. You cannot convert yourself and you cannot by only the word of God alone in your brain. You cannot convert yourself. It's impossible. You need the Holy Spirit. But does that mean therefore you can't confess that you're enslaved so as to be set free by him? Okay. This is where it gets really important. How do you confess? Of course. But does that mean, therefore, you can't confess that you're enslaved so as to be set free by him? How? Do you see the non sequitur of the Calvinist? You can't free yourself equals for the Calvinist what? You can't confess that you're enslaved and trust in him so as to be freed by him. But how would you do that? Tell me how. You can't confess that you're enslaved and trust in him so as to be freed by him. Right. So how do you trust in him? How do you confess? How do you know that? You see, you see the point? You've got to follow these things because Calvinists are very good at just throwing out all of these texts at you. We're really good at the Bible, I'm telling you, because there's a lot of text with Calvinists. And I'm going to be frank with you. He hasn't read a single Bible verse in this entire, for 15 minutes. He hasn't read a single Bible verse to back up his claim and getting you to follow into their way of thinking without seeing what they're doing. And you've got, to, you've got to watch for it. We are completely unable to turn from ignorance to truth. We are completely unable to stop rebelling against God and stop being hostile to his word. Sounds like a really good excuse for not, for not, rebel, for, for, for not confessing your sin, doesn't it? It, it, is, it is the reason. It's the, it's the depravity of man. It's not an excuse. No one's making an excuse. There is no excuse for man. You're, you're unable to confess your sin, and yet you're held responsible for not confessing your sin. Seems like a really good excuse for... Yeah, so I'm sorry, but my my video on my phone is just not working out for me. Um, so I'm just going to have to continue on um, in this way. I hope that it still films while I'm doing this. So anyway, here we go. For not confessing your sin. I was decreed from birth not to be able to confess my sin in light of the law and the gospel. Sounds like a really good excuse. I was not able to confess my sin in the light of the gospel. Decreed from birth not to be able to confess my sin in light of the law and the gospel. I was not confessing your sin. I was decreed from birth not to be able to confess my sin in light of the law and the gospel. Not being able to confess my sin in light of the gospel. Uh, yeah, that's a great definition of total depravity. That's exactly it, actually. I was decreed by birth. Um, but it wasn't really a decree by God that we would all be condemned at birth. It was human's fault. We're the ones that ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, we're all fallen because of that. So God wasn't the one that decreed that we would be fallen. In fact, that's the reason why Adam was born not a sinner. Sounds like a really good excuse. Again, th this is Calvinism. This is what it's ultimately teaching. 
We are not only unable, but we are unwilling to do that, unwilling to repent, unwilling to believe, MacArthur says. And if we are to repent and to believe, then it must be like it was for Lazarus, where God who commanded the dead to rise has also to give them the power. Chapter verse, where does it compare, where does the Bible compare the story of Lazarus to how we are soteriologically saved? So where does the Bible compare um, Abraham and Isaac to Jesus Christ? I might be speaking really ignorant here, um, but where is the comparison? Um, does the Bible compare Abraham to Jesus? Um, now keep in mind that these are similarities between Abraham and Isaac. Right, but this is something, the 30 similarities between Abraham's offering Isaac on Mount Zion. But it does not say plain, like, like, like out loud. It doesn't say, like, Abraham and Isaac equals Christ's death. But you read in the text the similarities. The father leads his son to be sacrificed. A donkey is involved on the road to the sacrifice. Lazarus is dead, and Jesus Christ waits. How many days? I don't even know how many days it was. How many days was it? How Lazarus was dead for how many days? How many days was Lazarus dead? Lazarus was dead for four days, okay? <laughs> he was really dead, okay? So it wasn't three days, okay? But you can just sit there, and you can sift through the comparisons. You can just sift through, and you can say, you know what? I was dead to my sin. And now I am alive in Christ eternally. You know what's interesting is that Lazarus was dead. He was really dead. And he was raised to life by Christ too. So let's make that comparison. That's an amazing analogy. So it doesn't have to say it out like point blank. You can use you know your brain a little bit to, to use to inference a little bit. I'm not saying that it's important, but Mike, Mike Winger does an incredible video on the on the types of Christ, and some of them are more loosely connected than, than this one is. But I, I agree with him on those. As if we are passive. Listen, we believe that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're not passive to a certain degree. We, we are condemned at birth because of, our, because of Adam's action. That's is John MacArthur and other Calvinists. But what is the solution for those who are dead? The Bible says these things were written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, but how do you believe? So what does a dead man need? He needs to believe so as to be given new life. But how do you believe? Life. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. What does Jesus say is the solution for getting new life? You come to him. But how do you come to him? Believe in him. So You're a dead man. How do you come to him? So as to be set free. So as to be made alive. Yes, we agree that just like the prodigal, we were lost, but now we're found. We were dead, but now we're alive. Dead does not mean a moral incapacity to respond. To dead means dead. Dead means goodbye, done, see you later, completely unable to move. That's what, have you ever seen a dead body? Dead people don't do anything. God's life-giving truth. It means that you're in the far country. You're separated due to your rebellion. So there is a difference between God's abandonment and being dead in your sin. Therefore, you need to draw near. You need to come from your... How do you draw near? Your lost condition to a found condition. Yes, everyone needs to be from a lost condition to a found condition, but how do you do that without the Holy Spirit? Your dead condition being separated to being alive, being... Yes, you can use all the references that Lazarus used and all the other ways that Bible talks about how you're dead to life, blind to see, all of these things. But what is the modifier of that... Ver what is the modifier of a human being? Provisionism says the Holy Spirit. Calvinism says the Holy Spirit. You do not give a mechanic, and that is your job, the definition, the doctrine of the salvation. What is the doctrine of salvation? Made alive, just like he said to the church in Sardis, it's a church, the believers. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and renew what remains. But how do you wake up without the Holy Spirit? Even Calvinist commentary don't interpret dead there to mean moral incapacity to respond to the warning of Christ. That's not what they say. Calvinist commentary, which is the one that you're reading, says the inability to respond to the gospel. 
because the, the idiomatic use of deadness there means you're separated, church, because of your rebellion. No, dead means dead. And living carnal lives. What do you need to do? You need to wake up. That means you need to- How do you wake up? Come back. How do you come back? You need to come draw near. How do you draw near? To renew what remains. Dead in the scripture never means a moral incapacity to respond to God's life-giving truth. That's an assumption the Calvinist makes. So let's go back to this proof texting. Okay, and now we're going to end here because this is uh, the end of, he's going to go into the proof text and I'm excited to go through it. Um, but here's, this is what we're, um, this is what we're kind of dealing with, man. It's, it's absolutely insane to me how you, he, he says he does, and I'll, I'll even highlight it here. This is where he talks about, this is where we believe he, he, he thinks this, he thinks that you're, I mean, he probably believes in the, in the age of accountability. So he probably believes that you're accountable to your sin right about here. Right. But this part, he's like, yeah, all you got to do is that. But he misses this. How do you do this without this? And the pre, the, the definition of, oh man, I'm, I've got so many freaking tabs open. Provisionism is the idea that the gospel is the word of God, which is sufficient in and of itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit one time to enable the response, right? You can't enable the response without the Holy Spirit. You cannot convert yourself without the Holy Spirit. We're saying the same thing, but he is saying something completely separate. And, and to me, it's just, it's just, it's it's bad theology. It's ridiculous to me. And it shows the, the self-righteousness of saying, oh, well, I choose God, and God cannot, that, that's something that God cannot do. So anyway... I hope this finds you well. In the name of Jesus Christ, 